and they will see him more clearly for who he is and therefore respond to him in an appropriate way. And we ask, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All of us have friends who don't yet believe in Jesus. And in fact, I think it's quite likely that in a crowd like this there will be some of us who are also in that category. We're interested in him, we know certain things about him, but we're not yet ready to trust him. So, what do you need to know about someone before you can decide if you can really trust them? How do you move from unbelief to faith? Well, first and foremost, you need to have the right mental picture of them before you can rightly trust someone. Right? You need to know who they are you need so you can know whether you can trust them or not. Last week I told you about my parents' godson, whom I haven't seen for 29 years. Uh, and in my mind, he is a slightly spoiled little blonde boy about, about that high. Now, in reality, he's a grown man with children. Right? Now, I don't know what he's doing now, but let's suppose he was a bus driver. Uh, would I get on his bus? Now, if I used my own mental picture of him, and I thought he was this little naughty boy, then there is no way I'd get on a bus driven by this little naughty boy, would I? Right? Except to drag him out of the driver's seat before he does any damage. But if I knew that he was an adult, you know, now fully trained bus driver and responsible person, well, I'd have no hesitations. Before I can trust someone, I need to know them. I need to know them properly. And before I can trust Jesus, before I could move from unbelief to faith, I need to know him as he really is. And that's what Matthew is wanting to show us in this passage. Now, those of you who were here both last week and this week uh, will notice, if you are awake, that we read the same New Testament reading. Right? Uh, that's not a mistake. Because um, Matthew uh, 13, verse 53, the end of chapter 14, is actually, uh, I think, is, is one unit. Uh, it just will be concentrated on the first half last week. It will be concentrating on the second half this week. And the passage is framed by two accounts of a response to Jesus by two different towns. At the beginning of the passage, from the end, of, uh, uh, the end bit of chapter 13, uh, we see the people in, in Jesus' own hometown. And they're rejecting him. And we saw last week was because they, they, they had the wrong mental picture of him. They thought of him in purely human terms. They knew his family, his mother and her husband, his brothers, his sisters. They knew him as a carpenter, as the son of a carpenter. Uh, they knew him from a worldly point of view. And they refused to accept that he was more than that. And so they had a deficient picture of him. And so they rejected the ministry of Jesus. They are a picture of, of unbelief. And then at the other end of the unit, down the bottom, uh, at the end of chapter 14, verses 34 to 36, we see his reception in another town, Gennesaret. And here Jesus is acclaimed as a teacher, people, and, and a healer particularly. People trust him. They spread the message about him. They bring the sick to him. And they receive his ministry with joy. They're a picture of faith. And in between these two accounts, from this picture of unbelief and this picture of faith, Matthew gives us a number of other stories. The first one, which we looked at last week, was a flashback dealing with another rejection. Herod, the puppet king set up by the Romans, had John the Baptist killed. 
he, Herod was a, a wicked, a manipulative, a, a face conscious, a cowardly leader. He killed John the Baptist, rejected his ministry. So there he is, another picture of unbelief. But we also saw last week that John the Baptist was the Elijah figure for the New Testament. Just briefly, for those who missed it, God promised that, that before he came to visit his people, he would send the prophet Elijah ahead of him. And we saw that John the Baptist was this Elijah figure. He wasn't like the literal Elijah come down from heaven, but there was someone like him who fulfilled his role. But after Herod killed John, he started to hear about the things that Jesus was doing, and he thought that, that Jesus might have been John the Baptist raised from the dead. Another case of mistaken identity about Jesus. And Herod, who rejected John, also had the wrong mental picture of Jesus. Because Jesus is not John. He's far greater than John. And the other incidents that Matthew gives us between these two pictures uh, actually show that to us very clearly. And they're meant to correct the wrong mental picture that the people of, of Jesus' hometown had and the wrong picture that Herod had. They're meant to show us, not just tell us, but show us more about who Jesus is so that we in turn can put our trust in him. Now the first incident was the feeding of the 5,000. Now remember at this point Jesus has left. Uh, he's looking for a solitary place because he doesn't want publicity. He doesn't want a, a revolution. He's trying to get away from that kind of thing after uh, he could have taken political advantage of it uh, when you went, uh, uh, of John the Baptist's murder. But he decides to go to a desolate place across the lake on a boat. Now the problem was what he found when he got there. You see, news was go went out that, that he was going and crowds of people left the towns and they, they went by foot to where he was heading. And by the time the boat got there, there were masses of people waiting for him. Look at verse 13 of, of, uh, of chapter 14. Top of page, top right hand side of page 692. When Jesus heard about what happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. So, when Jesus and his disciples arrive there, what, what, what do you think they do? What does he say? Well, hey guys, we're having a break, so let's turn off the mobile phone, turn the boat around, and let's head back the other way now. No, no. Verse 14. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. He had compassion on the crowd. Because right? that's what he's like. He's, he's compassionate. He's kind. He cares. And that's why he actually stays on and heals their sick. Because he loves people. He has compassion on them. And so he stayed with them and he healed people there right up to the late afternoon. And then verse 15. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place and it's getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. The disciples here are being thoughtful, aren't they? Sometimes, you know, like we're doing Bible study or something, and someone will give a broad hint, really, that, Andrew, we need to be wrapping up soon because people need to go home. Yeah. <laughs> That's what happened with the disciples. They've been thoughtful. Jesus had compassion on the crowd. The disciples followed Jesus and being concerned for the people they were serving. And, and that's got to always got to be the case for us, isn't it? We've got to be always thoughtful and seeking the good of those whom we serve with the gospel. People never just numbers, people never just statistics. Oh, Matthew does give numbers and statistics at the end of the story, but, but for each number, it's a, it's a person. 
A person whom Jesus loves, whom he taught his disciples to be thoughtful about, a person that we care about, a person that we serve, a person whose, whose welfare we must be concerned about if we're to be followers of Jesus. So, the disciples made this very reasonable suggestion. Jesus, why don't we wrap up now so that people can go and buy food or they'll be hungry. Um, but, but Jesus had other ideas. Verse 16. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Uh, hang on. <laughs> Would you respond if you were one of the disciples? Hang on. Jesus, what did you tell me to do? Yeah. How can you ask me to do something that I can't possibly do? How can I feed so many people? Let's be realistic. Verse 17. We have here only five loaves and two fish, they answered. But you know, Jesus never gives his disciples jobs that are impossible. And they may seem impossible unless he's behind them. And he is. And so, verse 18, he says, Bring them here to me. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking into heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. And then he gave them to his disciples. The disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Wow. The disciples were able to feed the people after all. Only because Jesus did a miracle. See, when Jesus asked them to do something, made it possible for them to do it. Even though, humanly speaking, it was impossible. I mean, verse 21, the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. That's a lot of people to feed with five loaves and two fishes. Now, that's an amazing miracle, isn't it? But what's the significance of it? Well, it is a miracle that reminds us how God miraculously fed his people in the desert when he was bringing them out of Egypt. You may recall that about 1,500 years earlier, God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and was bringing them to the promised land and he brought them through the desert on the way and they had no food and God looked after them and provided for them in, in extraordinary ways. And by doing so, he was showing them that their survival was not dependent on their own abilities but, but entirely on him. And so here in the New Testament we see echoes of that wilderness experience as Jesus miraculously feeds the crowds. But I don't think it's just the Exodus that Matthew wants us to be reminded of. Remember our Old Testament reading when Elisha fed the crowd in the wilderness? Uh, Elisha was Elijah's successor. He was given a double portion of Elijah's spirit. In other words, he was twice as great as Elijah. Let's look again at that Old Testament uh, feeding miracle that we read about earlier. The man came from Baal, Shash, Shalishash, whatever. Bring the man of God, that's Elisha, 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. And how can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. But Elisha said, give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says, they will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. You see the similarity between that and the, and the feeding miracle of Jesus? Big number of people fed a small amount of food and with some left over. But with Elisha, he feeds a hundred people with twenty loaves. 
Jesus feeds 5,000 people with five loaves and 12 baskets full left over. Elijah feeds them according to the word of the Lord. Jesus speaks directly to his disciples. What does it show? It shows at the very least that Jesus is greater than Elisha. And since Elisha is greater than Elijah, Herod has underestimated Jesus because Jesus must be greater than Elijah. And if John is the Elijah figure that was promised, Jesus is far greater than John as well. And Herod's picture of Jesus is simply too small. But just in case we're not convinced, Matthew keeps telling us what happens next. The next incident starts with with Jesus sending his disciples off. And verse 22. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of them to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. The text says he made them go. It's likely they were a bit hesitant to do so. Maybe, I don't know why, maybe they didn't want, you know, um, to leave him there by himself. Maybe they wanted to dismiss the crowd for him. That was normally the job of the rabbi's disciples. Or maybe they were fishing, maybe because they were fishermen they could see there was going to be a storm brewing ahead. But, but whatever the case is, Jesus insisted that they left. He dismissed the crowd himself. And just like Moses went up to the mountain alone to meet God, Jesus goes up to the mountain to do the same. Verse 23. And after he dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. Jesus spent time with the crowds compassionately healing them he spent time with his disciples teaching them, training them, working with them and now he would also spend time alone with his heavenly father a great example isn't it for us all how important it is to spend time alone with God so when the disciples are gone the crowd is gone Jesus alone prays but meanwhile the disciples in the boat were having trouble the end of verse 23. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves, because the wind was against it. Now, the disciples here in this boat, way out, the waves, the, the wind's blowing the other way, and the waves are coming up, buffeting the boat. So, now, they're probably wishing now that Jesus hadn't sent them out alone. Right? Last time they were in a bad weather at sea, Jesus was with them, and he calmed the storm with his word, but now he sent them out in the sea the wind was against them the waves were pounding along the boat and Jesus was nowhere to be seen and there they were battling the waves by themselves and this must have gone on for a long time because the next thing that happened is the fourth watch of the night which is between 3am and 6am verse 25 during the fourth watch of the night Jesus went out to them walking on the lake Jesus went out to them walking on the lake See, Jesus hadn't sent them to drown. He had sent them. He had insisted they go, and he would go with them. He would protect them. And here he was, coming to them in their distress. That's a great encouragement for us too, isn't it? And Jesus sent his disciples out to preach the gospel. At the end of Matthew, remember what he says? He says, Lo, I am with you always. Because friends, when we're obeying Jesus, when we're doing what he commands us, he will be with us doesn't mean storms won't come doesn't mean there won't be trials and difficulties but, but Jesus will be with us in the midst of it so Jesus went out to his disciples who were there struggling on the lake struggling to keep the ship afloat and Jesus instead of being you know, 
overcome by the waves. They're just simply walking on it. All those big waves there, and they're going. You must wonder why Jesus set this up, aren't you? you? Must wonder why Jesus comes out walking on the water. I mean, he's not someone who does party tricks. Huh? This is serious. Why is Jesus doing this amazing miracle? Well, Matthew doesn't immediately tell us the significance of what's happening. So, what do we do? I think by now we know what to do, do we? The New Testament doesn't tell us what the significance is of what we're seeing. What do we do? Look at the Old Testament. That's right. Okay. Uh, the only place I know in the Old Testament where walking on water is mentioned is in the book of Job. Uh, listen to what Job says about how great God is. Job chapter 9. Let's look, go down to verse 8. It says, He alone has spread the heavens and marches on the waves of the sea. Marching on the sea, on the waves of the sea. That's, that's used figuratively in Job, but, but here Jesus brings it into literal reality. So he is the one who marches on the waves of the sea. And if that's the case, he, he's the one who fulfills all the other bits of the passage as well. Uh, l- listen to them. Without warning, he moves the mountains, overturning them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and its foundations tremble. If he commands it, the sun won't rise and the stars won't shine. He alone has spread out the heavens and marches on the waves of the sea. He made all the stars, the bear, Orion, the plague, whatever, and the constellations. I'm not having a good day with these funny words, I'm not today. And the constellations of the southern sky. His great works are too marvelous to understand. He performs miracles without number. See, that's just Job's mental picture of God. And so Matthew, in fact, indeed God, wants us to add this to our mental picture of Jesus. And so we see him not just as a, a man from Nazareth in Galilee, but, but as the creator himself, who marches on the waves of the sea and, and all the other things that the creator does. Years later, after the Apostle Paul had incorporated this into his picture, he wrote this about Jesus. For by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. See, the one who metaphorically and literally marches in the ways of the sea, he is the creator of heaven and earth. He is God. But I'm sure that's not the first thing the disciples thought of when they saw this figure walking to them on the sea. Right? They didn't sit back and go, Oh, Old Testament, where are Job? Job. No, no, no. <laughs> what did they do? Oh, end of verse 26. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said. They cried out with fear. Well, you can't blame them, can you? I mean, you don't expect to see Jesus or anyone else walking on the waves. I mean, it doesn't make sense for someone with mass to be walking on water. And so they conclude there's someone, something with that mass, like a ghost. Listen to what Jesus tells them. Verse 27. Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Or something like that. Um, what Jesus actually said is a bit obscured by our translation. Uh, our, our translation is a good one. It's NIV, and it's 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 said it the way the best way of saying it that can be grammatically correct. Okay, but what Matthew wrote in the Greek literally is, "Take courage, I am. Do not be afraid. Okay, don't be afraid, I am." You see, in the Old Testament, 
God had revealed himself as I am. When Moses asked him his name, God says, I am who I am. Tell the people, I am has sent me to you. Has sent me to you. And when Jesus comes to his disciples, walking on the water, a pointer we have seen to the fact that he is divine, he says to them, do not be afraid, I am. So who is Jesus? See, John the Baptist, like Herod thought? See, Elijah, who prepares the way for the Lord? No, 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 no. John the Baptist is Elijah. Jesus is so much greater than Elijah. We've seen by looking at the Old Testament that, that Jesus is the Creator God Himself. And just in case we missed Him, Jesus confirms it to us in His own words. I am. Don't be afraid. Jesus is Yahweh, the God of Israel Himself. The Sovereign Lord, the Creator, the, the King of Heaven and Earth. He is God come to rule His people. That's who He is. And so when Jesus says, don't be afraid, I am. He's revealing himself for who he is and correcting our wrong picture of him. But when Jesus said that, Peter, one of his disciples, spoke up and he, he calls him Lord, which could just mean sir, but it's often used as a title for God. So Peter's beginning to get the flow of it. And he says in verse 28, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Or since it's you, could be other one. And Jesus says, come. Then Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. Now how amazing was that? The power of Jesus was such that not only could he could walk on water, but he could even cause Peter to walk on water as well. And so there's Peter walking on the water, coming to Jesus. That's a pretty amazing picture, isn't it? It's a picture of faith. You'd have to really trust Jesus to step out like that, wouldn't you? It's a picture of discipleship. Because he's doing that in, in response to Jesus' command. And it's a picture of frailty. Because Peter is no superman. He's like us. And like us, he can lose perspective. Verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And began to sink. Beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, Save me. Now we can understand that, can't we? I mean, of course he was afraid when he saw the, the wind and the waves, things that could throw him off balance, throw him into the water. I mean, who wouldn't be afraid? Although, when you come to think of it, and you sit down in a calm environment and you think about it, the only reason he's able to walk on water anyway is because Jesus is standing him supernaturally. And if Jesus is standing him supernaturally, then what's a few more waves, huh? Yeah. Surely if Jesus can keep someone walking on water, then he can deal with waves. Right? Now, if you think about it theoretically, it makes lots of sense. But when you're out there in the middle of it, of course it's not so easy. And it's like that in our lives too, isn't it? We sit down and think about things theoretically. Then, oh yeah, okay, okay. When we're out there, <gasps> it's scary. We panic. Right? Peter panicked. When he panicked, he began to sink. But his instinct was correct. And he called for help for the only one who could help him. He says, Lord, save me. And in doing so, he was echoing the prayers of many of God's people throughout the psalm. People who prayed using Psalm 144, verse 7 to 8 from the Old Testament. 
praying, reach down your hand from on high, deliver me and rescue me from the mighty waters, from the hands of foreigners whose mouths are full of lies, whose right hands are deceitful. See, for them the waters was a metaphor for their enemies. For Peter the water was literal, it was a sea. Right? But the cry is still the same. Right? Save me, deliver me, rescue me. And just as God delivered his people from the waters of their enemies, so did the Lord Jesus deliver Peter from the waters of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 31. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? Another Old Testament psalm, Psalm 18 says this. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. Jesus saved Peter. And then he says, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? See, the reason Peter started sinking was because he started doubting. He took his eyes off Jesus and onto the winds. Jesus had called him to come. Peter was walking by faith in his word. Now it's not like Peter was like treading water really fast or anything. Not, 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 his, not his work that was keeping him up. It was, it was the power of Jesus received by faith. And Jesus had come. He trusted that he would be able to come. It was faith. It was trust in the words of Jesus that enabled him to walk on water. And when his faith wavered, so did his walk. And yet he still had little faith. He called out to Jesus and Jesus still saved him. Right? It didn't, doesn't mean that he had little faith and his faith wavered or it stopped him from being saved. He, he called to the Lord and the Lord rescued him. The fact that he had little faith and he trusted too little when the doubts came meant that he wasn't able to keep walking on the water. Now, how could this be an example for us? Because Jesus hasn't called us to walk on the water to him, has he? Right? So he won't be able to walk on water. Right? We can't even say, oh, we can walk on water if we really, really believe it, or something like that, you know. Because Jesus never told us to come. Right? Faith is not mind over matter kind of thing. Right? Just believe something hard enough and it will happen. Right? Faith is trusting the promises of God. And if God hasn't commanded something, and if God hasn't promised something, then believing it isn't faith, it's presumption. When Jesus says, come, then faith says, I'm coming, Lord. Never mind the sea, never mind the waves, never mind the storm. Never mind the fact that it seems impossible. When you say come, I come. That's faith. Now where does Jesus tell us to come? And what does he promise us? Well, if we look through Matthew's Gospel to other times Jesus says come, we've got lots of different times, but the ones that have direct relevance for us, we, I think we, we see him giving this invitation a few chapters earlier. Matthew eleven twenty eight. he says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. A few chapters later, he gives this warning in 16, verse 24. He says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. See, for us, a command to come is an invitation to, to follow Jesus, to come to him. What about the waters in the raging sea? How can that be an example for us? Well, the one thing our Old Testament connections have already shown us is that, that being saved from the waters can be a metaphor for, for, for being saved from our enemies. That's what, what the Old Testament was using it for. And it's just as God saved his people from their enemies, Jesus saved Peter from the waters. And as Peter saved, Jesus saved Peter from the waters, God can rescue us from those who, ones who, will, who will seek to destroy us.
Because friends, following Jesus, obeying his voice, that's not easy. In life, Peter, we can't do it ourselves. It's not within our capabilities. But those who wish to, to pull us down, the world, the flesh, the devil, they are powerful. And they will throw all kinds of things against us to, to throw us off course, but we are upheld by the power of Jesus. And we tap into that, not by our works, by treading water, but, but by faith. By trusting Him. Trusting Him to do what is humanly impossible, to hold us up in the raging sea. We need to fix our eyes on Him. But even then, sometimes we fail and make the mistake of looking at what's coming against us and panicking. We know what to do when our faith is weak, don't we? Like Peter, we cry out, Lord, save me. And you know what? Jesus does it. Because he's our compassionate saviour and our gracious Lord. So I think there is an example for us here. Yet the most important thing about the passage is not how it functions as an example for us, but what it's actually directly teaching us about who Jesus is. Isn't it? And there's one more thing that happens that reinforces who Jesus is in verse 32 when they climbed into the boat the wind died down once again we see Jesus as Yahweh the creator who controls the weather he's done this kind of thing before where we looked at it last year when we were looking at Matthew 8 but, but here he's done it again right after his bold claim to be I am and once again we're reminded of all those Old Testament passages that, that tells us that only God does these things I think last year we looked at three different passages when we covered Matthew 8. Let me just remind you of one of them. Psalm 107. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the mighty waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he com- commanded and raised a stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They melted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their calamity. They reeled and staggered like drunkards and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distress. He made the storm be still, the waves of the sea were hushed, and then they were glad because they had quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wonderful works to humankind. Let them extol him in the congregation of his people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders. God is the one who calms the sea. Jesus calmed the sea. And so in light of all this, the disciples make the only appropriate response. Verse 33. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Truly, Jesus, you, you are the Son of God. You share the characteristics of God himself. What only God does, you do. You are God's Son. And so just like God your Father, you are worthy to be worshipped and adored. Now friends, now that we've seen this about Jesus, then what comes next is no surprise. Verse 34 to 36. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. Edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. See, Jesus, if he's God made flesh, then, then he can do anything. The thing that the people wanted him most to do was to heal their sick. And so he lands at Gennesaret, also by the Sea of Galilee, 
And they believed him. And the men sent out the message to the whole region that Jesus arrived and huge crowds come with the sick and they come and they bring their sick, they beg him just to touch the fringe of his robe because they're confident that he could heal them. He has compassion on them. And all who touched him were completely healed. Friends, as we saw last week, the, the physical healings that Jesus performed as he walked this earth are, are small pictures of that, that bigger healing, that bigger salvation that he was going to bring about through his death on the cross and rising again as Lord and King. And just like the people of Gennesaret recognized Jesus, sent word about him, we too proclaim that, that he is able to save. And just like the people brought all the sick to him, we too bring ourselves and others to him in faith. And just as Jesus healed all those who came to him, we can be sure that he will save us who come to him completely from sin and death and hell and make us part of his new creation where sickness and pain and, and all the other negative effects of sin are gone forever. Now the reception that Jesus received in Gennesaret very different from the reception he got in his hometown, isn't it? Remember how the section began of Matthew? It's rejection in his hometown at the end of chapter 13. Now it finishes with this massive reception in Gennesaret. Matthew is first shown as an example of people who rejected Jesus, who took offense at him, and he didn't do much healing in their town. And now he's shown as an example of people who received him. And many people were completely healed. See, our narrative has moved from unbelief to faith. And in between this account of unbelief and faith, Matthew has shown us how we can move from one to the other. What is it that drives us from being like the unbelieving people at Jesus' hometown to becoming like the believers of Gennesaret? Well, it's understanding what comes in between. On the negative side, we're aware of false kings, pretenders to the throne that rightly belongs to Jesus, kings that we can't trust like Herod, if you looked at last week. And then on the positive side, we understand who Jesus really is. And Matthew's helped us do that by helping us understand that, that Jesus, he's a prophet, but not just a prophet. He's much greater than Elijah. He is a king, the true king of God's people. He is I am, the creator, the Lord, who rules heaven and earth. And he's the compassionate God has come to save his people. If you know this Jesus, then will you put your trust in him? Let's pray. <coughs> we thank you, Father, that you have not left us in the dark about who you are, and you have not left us in the dark about who your son is. That you have shown us, um, both in what he has done and what he says, um, through his, his identity. Now, Father, we pray that you help each of us to, to trust him, uh, knowing that he is the Lord God of heaven and earth, um, who loves us, who has compassion on us, who has come into this world to die for us, to save us, uh, we thank you for his love and his compassion. And we thank you for his mighty power. And uh, we thank you um, that uh, through him we can have forgiveness and eternal life with you forever. 
Help us, we pray, to keep a right perspective on him as our Lord and our King, and therefore have a right perspective on all the events of our lives that come under him. We pray this, Lord, in his name. Amen.